to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. In this first season, not just a statistic, I'm bringing you the stories of women in sport from career start to the boardroom. Every episode is with an amazing woman from a range of different sports and a range of different positions in sport. And every episode is going to give you some actionable insights as a sports fan, as a member, as an administrator, as a leader to take action on how to close the leadership gender gap in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Today's guest is Dr. Kate O'Halloran, who is an award-winning journalist, media consultant and academic. Kate is currently working for the ABC as a digital sports journalist. In 2019, Kate co-founded Siren, a women in sport collective, calling for better coverage of women's sport and raising the voice of women and marginalised identities in media. Kate has completed a Bachelor of Arts with Honours in Psychology, as well as a postgraduate diploma in Cinema Studies at the University of Melbourne. She also completed a PhD in Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. In 2019, Kate was awarded the Vic Health Award for Outstanding Reporting of Women's Sports and in 2018 was shortlisted for a Quill Award for Excellence in Coverage of Women in Sport. She was also shortlisted for Excellence in Sports Programming at the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia Awards for her radio show and podcast, Kick Like a Girl, and has recently picked up a gong for in the AFL media. In this interview, Kate calls for media organisations to commit to 50-50, not only in the representation of women's sport, but for the people producing the content. Kate says that organisations need to hold themselves to account by making their commitment public and acting transparently through a accountability reporting. I'm also calling out in this episode, I'm looking for people who want to make a difference by encouraging them to turn to non-mainstream media lines such as Siren and to contribute whether as a subscriber, writer or investor. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Kate, to the Advancing Women in Sport Research Series. Very, very good to see you again. You too. All right. So let's let's go right back to the beginning and mm-hmm. talk about your history in sport. Um, why did you enter into the world of sport and how did you get there? I guess it depends what you mean by the world of sport. Do we mean my playing career or do we mean media? Or Why don't we do a chronological or a linear um, exploration um, of your life? Sure. Because, yeah, sure, we, we've heard about your bio, but so many of us have so many different entry points and it's multidimensional. Mm. So you started mm. playing sport as a as a kid and uh, had great talent and you were a representative player. So let's mm-hmm. walk, walk us through that and particularly because it was an only as well for, for quite a long time in, in, in the world of junior sport. That's right. Yeah, so I guess I probably just grew up in a sports mad family was number one. So, yeah, on my maternal side, my grandparents were very passionate, sporting fans, but also participants. Yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but my grandma actually won the first ever attempting bowling championship for women way back in the um, 60s. Yeah, not many people probably think attempting bowling is sport, but it is a sport. So, you know, weekly trips to the bowling alley was sort of one 
one of my first entry points into into a sort of sport. You know, I, a whole family of people who played it in elite or representative sport. So, you know, my mum played netball for Victoria, played tennis with Pat Cash. My auntie coached the Melbourne Kestrels when they were part of the Super Netball. Wasn't called that then, but, you know. So I had a whole family of netballers, basketballers. Uncles both played footy. You know, everyone was into sport in some way or another. You were immersed and marinated in sport. I was indoctrinated, that's right. And I think everyone wanted me to play netball because there is a photo shoot of me in one of the local papers of playing netball and my auntie forced me into that photo because I never liked netball and I never played netball. <laughs> I never wanted to be a netballer and it said budding netballer Kato Halloran. So uh-uh. <laughs> I was always much more into traditionally male-dominated sports and I think that was partly my gender identity as well, just being much more of a tomboy and a queer young person, just didn't really identify with the culture of netball as much as, you know, Aussie rules, cricket. But, you know, of course, I'm 35 now, so I guess when I was in primary school, they were only playing played by boys really so I would participate in lunchtime you know footy cricket etc but you know that led to bullying and things like that as well because boys didn't like someone being as good as they were at those sports and then probably my first sort of organized sport was basketball on the weekends played that for a few years did a bit of squad work can't remember what it's called now but yeah after that got into indoor cricket was really successful with that. That was mixed team. And then someone asked me to play outdoor cricket and you know, secondary school, I, I played everything I could really. So soccer, cricket, basketball, softball, tennis, yep. captain, the cricket team, whatever. And then played outdoor cricket with boys. So probably when I was mid-teens, I reckon I started at Yarraville Cricket Club in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And yeah, and eventually became the captain of my team, which was an interesting experience. I'm not sure if I was the only girl at that point because we did have another girl in our team at one point. Yeah, I was a, a really good cricketer and actually my experience of boys' cricket was mostly positive for those first few years at least. Yes, I always stood out and that meant that I got teased and bullied sometimes, but because I was so talented, I think they just couldn't help but respect me in the end so you know like I had plenty of experience of boys trying to take a second run when I was fielding and then getting run out because I was actually a really good throw and (laughs) there were all these assumptions about me as a girl that I wouldn't be as good as the other boys but in some ways I was better even um, won the bowling average for our competition across the state when I was 16 I think 15 something like that this is all ancient history by now but and then yeah I think it did change a bit when I so usually girls give up I think around age 14 and I was actually given an exemption to keep playing for a couple of years with the boys but I remember moving to sort of under 17s and around that time I don't know if it was just a puberty thing but the boys kind of changed in their attitude to me like I remember being captain and being challenged on quite a few calls you know if I deciding to bowl someone or stop you know change the bowling order or the fielding I felt like some of the boys sort of started to question my decision making challenge my leadership in a way that had never happened before and also even just at practice in the net you know I had boys suddenly trying to bounce me all the time trying to hurt me and that yeah that was really uncomfortable that yeah I'd never experienced boys cricket like that before and it sort of made yeah it really 
dampen my enthusiasm for cricket with the boys. I also got a new coach who was just some bloke's dad who batted me last because I was a girl and obviously that meant I was crap. And I started to bat like crap because it felt like crap, you know. Yep. No one respected me anymore and all recognised my talent. So uh, it was about that time that I think I was just told that I had to start playing with girls and women. So I ended up playing at Altona which is a bit of a culture shock, really, going from having captained the boys and all the all the sort of kudos that you get playing boys cricket and access to better grounds and, you know, all the privilege that comes along with boys and men's cricket, suddenly being deprioritised for training, you know, getting the grounds that weren't proper turf wickets, all that sort of stuff. And just having to acclimatise to then playing with adult women was just such a different culture. But I needed to do that if I wanted to get anywhere with my cricket in terms of state cricket and representation. So, yeah. I did that, tried out for the state championships, had an excellent carnival, topped the batting average for Victoria that year. was lucky enough to get in the squad. So I think the first point that, that I want to explore there is that inequity, that very glaring inequity that mm. you experienced, which I've got to say, we still see today in 2021 mm. when this is being recorded, that women and girls access to equipment, to mm. facilities, to coaching, to etc. is still, as you said, deprioritized over the boys and the or the male game. So you yeah. experienced that back then and we're still experiencing it now. Why? You could perhaps say that effectively 20 years ago that you're yeah. talking about this experience and humans evolve, societies evolve, attitudes and, and sentiment evolve. However, yeah. we're still seeing, and now I know that we are very fortunate being, you and I being in Victoria, where we've had yeah. significant investment in or policy re- reform and investment investment in enacting that policy by the Victorian government to say female facilities, etc. But that is not universally adopted across, well, the world, but Australia. We've got, you know, various titles in, in America that colleges must have equal representation between women and men. And, and my apologies for being very binary in terms of gender here, but to illustrate the point. So, but you experienced that firsthand and we're not seeing that evolve quick enough. Mm-hmm. What does that do for women participating in whatever their chosen sport is? Mm. Whether it be on or off the field, that that inequity that you feel or observe or experience all the time. Well, I think it's really in your face. I mean, it was for me, I think, particularly having come from a different environment, having come from boys and men's cricket. But I think it breeds sort of resentment. But also sells a message, a very clear message that you are inferior. And, you know, I, I just remember all the conversations that we had about it could have been men's Z grade cricket and it would have got, you know, prioritized over Premier Division women's cricket. That was just standard. And, It also, I mean, it's classic, provide us with less quality facilities, resources, investment, et cetera, and that plays out in the end product. You know, I don't think I played the outcome. I certainly didn't play my best cricket when I played in a women's team or in in a girls' team because... As I said, simple things like you're not playing on the proper turf wickets. You don't learn how to be a proper swing bowler if you're constantly playing on trash wickets. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's all that yeah, stuff. And then I even played boys representative cricket when I was yeah under 14, I think, for the Western District. I think I was one of the only girls ever to do that. 
And I just remember the boys had such a familiarity with those wickets and those grounds and, and how the ball swings on those wickets. And I had never had much of that experience at all. I mean, at that stage, I had played boys cricket. But beyond that, I've never had that same opportunity again with those superior facilities to actually hone my craft or gain any familiarity with better conditions. So whatever sport we're talking about, there will be an impact on the quality of the output if the input isn't equitable. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's another element to that um, which you've talked to us about before and, and I think this is a really – because I want this – interviews to be shining a light on what administrators must do. Mm. and But the impact for that inequity for you was a serious injury that was mismanaged. Mm. So can you talk to us about that? Yes. <laughs> I saw someone for an appointment about this yesterday. So this is an ongoing impact. I'm at 35 years of age. Yeah, when I was about 14, I was playing cricket one day. It was, again, just in the boys' side. Got, got into the car and just sat down, put my seatbelt on and got this horrific pain in my leg, shooting pain down my leg. And I sort of thought, mm, gosh, like, have I done a hamstring or something? This is strange because there was no impact. I let it go for a while until I transitioned to girls and women's cricket and I was in the state squad and I remember approaching coaches or the coach parents maybe and coaches and saying what's you know something's wrong with my leg um I get this con- almost constant pain now in my leg and it was really impacting my schooling you know I couldn't sit in assembly I could hardly get through a class actually without a lot of pain in my leg and yeah no one knew what it was I got told to go to the doctor maybe I've done my hemi yeah who knows just talk to your GP yeah, we didn't have a team physio, we didn't have a team doctor. Coach clearly had no medical understanding of what this injury could be. So, you know, I went on a very sort of slow and long path of investigating it by myself with mum and unfortunately got sent to a really dodgy physio who told me that, well, I had some scans done firstly by a specialist and confirmed that I had bulging discs and they were impinging my sciatic nerve running down my left leg. So that explained the pain. It wasn't hamstring at all. It was back injury-induced sciatica. And yeah, I got told by this physio who, you know, we sourced ourselves just close to home in Altona because there was no support available via state team that if I were to continue to play sport, I'd end up in a wheelchair was what I was told. You know, this is a girl who spent her whole life playing everything she could, you know, not just cricket. I played tennis on the weekends for sport. I played it for school. I played everything, soccer, baseball, whatever I could get my hands on, you know. And I was sort of like, oh, well, <laughs> happy to take the risk, you know. <laughs> And he was like, no, I'm telling you, Kate, you know, this is serious. You want to end up in a wheelchair, you keep playing sports. So, yeah, that was life-changing, you know, because I did continue to try and play sport, but my injury got worse because it wasn't being managed properly. And the pain became so bad that I did eventually quit. I quit when I was in the under-19 state squad. And that was incredibly painful, devastating. And it's never been properly managed. I'm 35 years old and I went to an appointment yesterday with a pain specialist about about this injury that I've had since I was 14, which was made a lot worse by stopping sport. (laughs) You know, and and I, I look at that poor advice and the lack of resources available to a woman or a young woman who's mm. playing sport and mm. 
I suppose in, in my own experience in sport as an administrator, looking at glaring inequities we see, and you know, my, my love of football is, is well known, Australian rules football, but seeing those glaring inequities with the number of coaches, trainers, yeah. medical staff assigned to the, the men's squads versus those assigned to the women's squad. And I think particularly the medical staff, these are the consequences of inequity is that potentially lifelong injury and therefore injury management, chronic pain, etc., as well as exit from sport in totality. So your advice to an administrator, Kate, would be what? It can't continue. The inequity in resources can't continue because it has a real human cost, you know. I mean, I've got a cousin who currently plays AFL, you know, and he's had a range of injuries that have been managed He's been supported through, he's had the financial means to manage, he's had all the resources available to him to continue his elite sporting career. I didn't have that. And I'm 35 years old and, as you say, still dealing with chronic pain, chronic fatigue, a whole range of issues associated with injuries that were never managed the way that they should have been and it cut my elite sporting career short. It's as simple as that. The economic inequity as well, you've touched on there and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, had you been playing an elite sport, attracting an elite sports person's pay and, and I'm mm. actually going to say I'm gonna, an elite sports men's pay would have had the not only the access to facilities and medical staff, but you've you always had the economic means to perhaps uh, invest or interrogate the, the medical profession a little more thoroughly but when you're, you know, the reality is if you if it's the difference between putting food on the table and rent and going to yet another specialist what mm-hmm. happens and we're still seeing that today aren't we yeah 100% I mean thankfully cricket is in a slightly better place than it was when I was playing but I wouldn't say it's where we want it to be but yeah Aussie rules you know I'm a massive Aussie rules fan as well and these women are surviving off, you know, 10 grand a year as their second income. It's taxed as their second income. You know, this, it's obscene actually what we expect these women to do. And they're not contracted year round, even though they need to train and, and get themselves into a shape to play AFL football year round. So yeah, the money issue actually is very real, you know, like even for me now as an adult, you know, I'm in between jobs at the moment and it's the costs that I pay for this stuff is is insane. You know, like yesterday, I think my appointment with pain specialist was like $400, you know, and like how can I afford that when I don't have a job at the moment? How can I afford that anyway? But, you know, it's, it's this loop anyway. Everyone who's been through the medical system with some sort of chronic condition would understand that you go to one specialist and they want you to have GAN and they want you to try this new medication that's not covered by the PBS and they want you to go see this other specialist who costs $350. You know, and it's time, it's money, it's investment. And, you know, at least with men's elite sport, they're set up beyond retirement at least yes. with the cash to afford to manage these issues. I have none of that. I, I, you know, when I, this is 20 years ago, but when I played cricket at that level, I mean, we paid our way there. We didn't get paid anything. I, I don't have a cent from that time and look how much it's cost me to manage this injury myself. You know, I don't own my own house. I don't have any assets. You know, I've spent my whole life just kind of treading water, managing my medical conditions, even though I've got a PhD and you know, highly qualified. 
Yeah, it's not good enough. That, though, you know, the, the message here, and for those of you watching and listening, you can read Kate's full interview. You know, there are just so many glaring inequities that have, it's not just at the time and not a feeling of, gee, this is not fair that moment of time, which of course it is not fair at that moment mm-hmm. of time, but there are lifelong implications for girls and women as mm-hmm. a result of inequity in, mm-hmm. in women's sport. And so for administrators, we've got to start looking beyond the headlines, beyond the, the periphery and just saying, what else can we do here? Because we are the custodians of the, the club, the industry, the game, whatever it is. And we've actually got a duty of care to all humans. So mm. I think your point there illustrates that um, really, really well. So the next part of your life, Kate, is sports journalism. Yeah. Now, I've glossed over your academic endeavours because I, I want to loop back to that. But the sports media, Let I think from an elite sports person into sports media, not it's a well-trodden path, quite, well, let's face it, you've only got to turn on Channel 9 on a Sunday morning to see all of the folks that have been hanging around footy and cricket grounds for 100 years all getting a gig. Um, and it's very sure. male and it's very male. But anyway, so well-trodden path. You, you, you've, you've gone down that path. Mm-hmm. What are you observing as a sports journalist, as a woman sports journalist, what are your experiences and what are you observing in terms of inequity? Many parallel inequities is what I'm observing. It's funny because, yeah, I never really thought of that as me following this well-trodden path from athlete to um, media because I guess I don't even think of myself as really an elite athlete because, well, my career was cut so short and I was so young. But, really? yeah. Um, really? Mm, no, I don't. I sort of get embarrassed actually when people say former Victorian cricketer because I feel like I have to qualify that it was when I was very young and it wasn't very long-lasting. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a bit of unsolicited advice. So would a man say that? Probably not, No. <laughs> But, I mean, it's probably reflective. My attitude and my pride in that is probably reflective of the conditions that I endure as as an athlete. I mean, I should own that. I know that's partly on me. (laughs) I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, It's just interesting because I think it's so different for men, isn't it? But although we're seeing this slightly replicated in AFLW, whereby... There's this argument that, oh, we have no women coaching. Well, oh, don't worry. Now that now that women are starting to retire from the game, they'll become the next brigade of coaches, which I think's crap, actually. It's just not good enough. Sorry, I'm oh, sworn on you. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into coaching. In a Back to the point. Media. Well, I started writing... Well, A, I've always been a writer and aside from my sporting career, that's really been the main thing that I do and am passionate about and I'm good at. So I remember just being horrified by actually I think the first story I ever wrote was about the boomers and the opals, like how the women had to fly in uh, economy class and the men got into business class and the argument used was that it was because they're height. And uh, I don't know if you remember this. I was appalled, obviously. and I do remember it, yes. And I just obviously reflected on all the experiences that I had growing up and playing sport at that level, Australia but Victoria, and, and the inequity I experienced. And so I wrote about that and how it's not about height. It's about sexism and patriarchy and gender inequality and all those things. So yeah, that was, I think I wrote that to the age and it just sort of coincided with around the time when the exhibition games were starting for AFL women's, well, it wasn't AFLW then, but women's exhibition matches. So I really lobbied the age to give me a pass to the press box and, and let me go and cover the exhibition games. So yeah, it just sort of made sense in my head that um, I could combine those skills. How did that story land? What was the reaction to it? The basketball one? 
Yeah. What sort of reactions did you get to that story? If I'm honest, probably a mixed reaction in the sense that I've never been able to write about gender inequality in sport without some form of trolling or harassment, whether that's online or in person or conversations in the pub with men, boys who want to tell me that they're not interested in women's sport and no one is and why do I bother writing about it and all of those things and that, yes, it is about height or it is about, you know, justification, minimising, gaslighting. (laughs) That's my general experience. And you know, it's it's so interesting because I'm I'm not particularly interested in curling, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, Winter Olympics, but I have never ever taken it upon myself to write <laughs> or troll any journalist that writes or broadcasts about curling to tell them that I'm not interested and that they should whatever they should do. So so I wonder why people feel the need to tell you I'm not interested in what you're writing and you can take a long walk off a short pier. And I'm actually being really polite because I know that you've had hideous trolling mm. so I, I don't get it but there's a there's a system in the media there's a system of oh, yeah. systematic or endemic in the media and again and I, I really want to bring an intersectional focus to this as well when we look at the media baron those mm. that control the stories the, you know, the editing what gets on the front page and what gets consigned to you know page 37 down the bottom right hand corner or bottom left hand corner those people are reasonable homogenous aren't they yeah i mean i was kind of going chronologically but we can skip right forward and say that i've been one of the very few people who've actually held a position of relative power in the media in terms of sports so having worked as deputy sports editor at the guardian for a short period of time that position was short-lived you know i really came to it with a very explicit agenda to, at the time, make that publication the home of women's sport and I really pioneered. My suggestion was 50-50 coverage, which we know has actually become a reality at places like the BBC, you know, initiating the 50-50 policy whereby they commit to 50% representation of women in sport. Whether they always meet those targets is another story, but I think, yeah, but BBC certainly did a really good job in that space. But almost immediately after I was hired, I, I thought, oh, well, they must have um, been really on board with my 50-50 suggestion. I got told that, oh, we would never commit to 50% representation of women's sport. <laughs> I was like, why? And they were like, well, we have a responsibility to follow the news agenda and it just might not fit in with the news agenda. And I was like, well, what is the news agenda if not in service of patriarchy? white supremacy, (laughs) able-bodied people, you know, that's ridiculous. Sport is a very – has been traditionally a very exclusive space for white, straight, able-bodied folk. And when I'm talking, I'm talking about very mainstream stuff. So if we look at the main codes, including netball, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the football codes, it's uh, swimming. So from a, a position of someone who is a consumer of sport and, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm involved, but, you know, I, I want to look, I have to look really, really hard for women's sports stories in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that the, the call to action there is, you know, if the BBC can do it, well, and, and look, I, 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 let's have a talk about targets. I mean, they've set a target. Yeah, they may not always make it, but the target's there and it's publicly committed to it. So this is the first thing for, for any leader of any organisation is make mm. a public commitment to, a public statement about the commitment to gender equity. That's right. Um, now, you are going to fall short at times. It's as simple as that because, you know, we, we have financial targets, we have, you know, um, stakeholder targets and not they're not always met and we have an explanation for it, so on and so forth. So that public commitment to a target and then setting about enacting on that is important. The mainstream media is not evolving, Kate. So what have you done about that? Because I want, I want to talk about what you've done about it, what you and a group of others have done about that. Sorry, and I, and I will say that once again, the burden of inclusion is being placed on the excluded. If we want gender equity, it's up to women to get it. Well, that's crap. Um, is that actually up to everyone? So let me just put a caveat on there when I said, what have you done about it, Kate? Oh, no, I know. I know what you meant. I know what the segue was. Yeah, I think I just firstly want to reinforce the point you just made, though, which is that because I've worked as a researcher in this space as well, the most successful initiative require a public commitment but also accountability to that commitment. So reporting on that commitment but also some form of leverage in terms of whether it's regulation. The Women on Boards initiative that was championed by the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation, Victoria, for example, requiring minimum 40% women on boards and tying funding to that commitment, i.e. you don't meet this commitment, you don't get your funding. Lo and behold, all these organisations that just two, couldn't get there. <laughs> two years later, they did. I, that, that is one of the best stories, you know. Yeah. By July 1, 2019, if your board, your sports board, wasn't 40-40-20, you would be potentially cut off from government funding. Now, that was launched <laughs> in 2017. And mm-hmm. to, to a great hoo-ha and scare. Guess what? July 1, 2019, I think it was about 46% compliant, went to not in the 90s. Gee, isn't it interesting how quickly things can change when your funding is threatened? <laughs> Who knew that targets and accountability could make a difference? Gee whiz. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm just such a strong believer in that, actually. I'm not afraid to say that I believe that quotas, accountability, reporting and tying something like funding to those requirements is the only way to go in my quotas on their own are a blunt stick yeah. or a blunt instrument but yeah. you wrap the enablement you wrap the the accountability <clears throat> and you also it's not just about punitive mm. uh, action this is also about tapping into rewards not least of which is higher performance mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's just extraordinary but yes it's a great case study thank you for highlighting that so yes you've done a lot of work you've done an enormous amount of advocacy work you're award winning so you've won many accolades and awards for the work that you do. However, you and a collective of, of women have taken the, the proverbial by the horns and said, well, if mainstream media aren't going to give the sporting public what it needs, even though some of them don't realise they need it yet, we're going to do something about it. So tell us about what, what was behind Siren Sport. I guess the really important point to make is that while I have done a lot of work in this space, while I might be an award winner and nominee and all those things, I don't have a job in sports media. <laughs> you look back at, you know, it's funny because people think I work at the ABC, people think I still work at The Guardian, people approach me on the street and say, think I'm a journalist. If you look at my CV, I've worked in journalism in a newsroom for just over a year. That's it. I've worked as a researcher, I've worked in family violence, um, worked in community services. I'm not a journalist in the sense of being an employed payee, like employee on the payroll with a stable job. And that continues despite 
how many awards or whatever I rack up. It doesn't matter, apparently. <laughs> when it comes to actually people putting the commitment to actually um, diversify newsrooms, particularly in sport, and I don't just mean in terms of gender, but also, you know, hiring more people of colour and people with disabilities and all those things, we're just not there. Siren really came out of this recognition, probably particularly from Aussie rules, but in terms of AFLW, that there were a number of us in very similar positions. Draft day, any major press conference, here's a band of us women, queer people, gender diverse people who were there on our own time, doing it free, doing it for barely anything you know, it costing more than we get paid to be there, etc. Us just kind of having this conversation over and over and finally going, all right, well, what are we going to do about it? Because no matter what, no matter how successful we are, no matter how, how many followers we have on social media, no matter how many people listen to our podcast or our radio show, none of us have secure employment and it's not yeah. good enough. So we, as Siren, came together and said, let's do something about it. What can we do about it? Well, um, we have to find an alternative funding model to make sure that we're not actually reinforcing this cycle of of women doing unpaid or underpaid work in this space because I think yeah it's it's a tough one isn't it something like social media you can look at it and say oh look what a great job it's done for elevating marginalized and diverse voices but who's getting paid (laughs) this is a lot of the stuff that that I continually talk about and advocate Mm. for that the lifetime economic security of women Uh is so fundamentally under discussed and not dealt with and it is magnified or inflated when you talk about women in sport in in the Mm -hmm. ecosystem that is sport because more often than not we're in sport as a part of what we do and typically unpaid and Mm -hmm. those sentiments and attitudes towards women getting paid what they're worth i i I follow carly findlay on on twitter and she is a regular contributor to the discussion about stop asking me to do stuff for free to talk about my disability for free pay me because I'm a writer and you know for, for you the same and and the the rates offered to women like you to write a piece that's probably going to take two or three days at least to create <laughs> 500 words and you're getting paid what 300 bucks or 400 bucks and I'm going in what world is it okay to effectively be paid $100 a day for a professional with your credentials and accomplishments. So the call to action out of this, and and we'll get back to Siren in a moment, the call to action out of this is, number one, stop asking women to work for free. So every time you ask a woman to write something, speak about it, turn up, show up, pay her. And if Hmm. you haven't got the budget for it, ask why. And if you haven't really haven't got the budget for it, don't ask. Find it that way. But then I think the second part, Kate, is coming back to Siren is because what people maybe look at Siren and say, what a great initiative for a bunch of women to get some women's sports in, into the you know, into the domain. But what I'm most interested in exploring here is how you are looking at a, a structural way or a systematic way to make sure women are paid because you're mm. not getting paid. And this is about disrupting what is currently a very inequitable system around sport and sports reporting or sports media for women. Yeah, I think about this all the time and I'm not even sure that we have it right either 
in Siren. It's, it's worth exploring. Look, I just think that the philosophical commitment behind Siren was that none of us are doing this anymore. We're not doing it for free. We're not doing it for $300 when it takes a whole week, you know, because it's just below the poverty line, you know. <laughs> so, what? yeah, basically our model is based on subscriptions to the newsletter whereby we provide exclusive access to original content from an expert who might be one of the Siren crew or an external contributor. And then we pay them and we pay them as much as we can and and properly to the extent that we can. But I would say that my experience of running something, to be fair, I really wasn't actively involved with the siren last year because of my own health stuff. But we do a lot of key work still, you know, because that's what it requires to do all the back end work of managing this collective and the, and the program. And I just think that until sometimes I think the answer is actually you just provide less and different people in the collective might have different opinions on this. But, you know, do you just provide one article a month? Because that's what we can afford to commission and pay that person properly. And yes, there's such an, a glaring need for more women's sport content, but we don't have to be the solution to that alone. You know, everyone has a responsibility, particularly the organisations that have much more budget than we do yes because I'd look at it from a different angle though so as I think you're you're on the money pardon the pun but you know I I would also say that there are many male founders of sporting Mm. media enterprises who have been funded now we know Mm. across the Mm. globe women receive less than two percent of startup capital so Siren is a startup and you know, there, there would be the equivalent, and I'm thinking about, you know, the likes of Croc Media, you know, Ticker Sports, you know, all, all of those kind of things. You know, they've had people go, I'm going to back you because of gender stereotypes. You're a bloke, you're an elite athlete, you may or may not be a journalist, but, you know, let's not. Mm-hmm. Who cares? I was going to say, you've only got to listen to any of the AFL broadcasts and know that that actually doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, neither does talent, but anyway, so... <laughs> You know, there's a different way of looking at, at Siren about how it mm. helped to disrupt attitudes. And what I want to do is really amplify that angle here, Kate, is to say there are ways of getting behind women's sports. Not everyone can turn up to a game. Uh, mm. Not everyone can write articles for sport. But what you can do is back women's sports, you know, 60 bucks a year. Or in, in terms of those who are philanthropic and saying, hey, yeah. can I get behind women? We want you to go and say, I'll drop $500,000 into the kitty for Siren Sports so women can get paid to produce content that we want to see. Yeah, you know, all of us would do it for a living. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, speaking about the collective here, but if someone paid me five days a week, four days a week even, to run Siren, to commission other women to produce content, I would so happily do that. But at the moment, we just don't have the funds to pay the people behind the operation who are creating opportunities for other women and and gender diverse folk to produce the content. And we're proud of providing those opportunities and paying those people. But until you pay the people who are making that happen as well, it's simply perpetuating the same cycle. So yeah, I think that is the answer. And we have applied for grants that we have haven't got to set up the business model and I do wonder about why that is why it's so hard even though it's such a glaring need for us to get that that funding to actually pay us to do the the background startup work. There's two pieces here. One, we want existing mainstream media organisations to really examine uh, the, mm. the you know, 50-50 and if not, why not? It's easier to trot out but there's got to be mm. the target and the accountability and the reward that goes with it. So that's number one. But then number two is look at non-mainstream media like mm. Siren Sport and, and there are other, mm. other women-led organisations and say, mm. how might I contribute 
contribute to solving structural gender inequity in sports mm. media by getting behind these. And now it may be investment in advocacy for amplification of the message, mm. whatever it may be. But those, you know, those are the really practical things that we want to see happen, right? 100%. And also I just want to add, which I think I have previously, that it's not just about 50% representation of women's sport within mainstream media if the people doing the content writing are all men Absolutely. and white men. So this, this is at every level. So we want yeah. to see an intersectional focus around mm. what I call the ecosystem of sport. Women mm-hmm. and men from all walks of life, all identities, all abilities being given mm. equal access to the opportunity to reach their full potential, whether they're in front of the camera, behind it. So on the field or off the field. And in in my work, I'm advocating for the off the field woman because I know that she is typically – She's undemented, undersponsored, underpromoted, mired in junior roles and not given the opportunity to reach her full potential. But we stay there, right? We stay in sport because we love it. Well, we're just constantly hanging by a thread. <laughs> Now, banging down the door. <laughs> we, we are, and, and we will. So we're not, we're not going away, you lot. So to wrap it up, Kate, I, I want to finish on a, you know, I, I don't want to be Pollyanna or, or sugarcoat anything, and I don't think we've sugarcoated anything in this conversation. <laughs> I never do. <laughs> what's going right in the in the world of sport? Because I want, I want to know, to, to give you more context, I have a firm belief that when we do something right, we should grab it and say, how did that happen so that we can teach people to do it again or in, inspire people to do it again and again and again? Mm. So for leaders who are watching this and saying, well, shivers, I've heard about everything that's wrong and I've got some things to do, but what are they doing right potentially that we want them to do much, much more of? Media or sporting organisations? Whatever you like, because I think this is, you know, we're crossing quite a number of different boundaries here. We mentioned this before, but the 40% Women on Boards initiative is a really good example of quick, dramatic change in an area that has been just stagnant for so long, hugely gender inequitable, and that changed at a very rapid pace with strong quotas, regulation, accountability. Very strong leadership shown Mm. by Mm -hmm. the the government and all all sections. So, Yeah, Victorian government in particular with their levels of investment, historic investment in gender equity and buying accountability to that, e.g. any kind of, you know, facilities, grants for facilities, you know, needing to be to prove the gender equitable nature of what you're going to do with that money. Media, you know, we mentioned 50-50 policy. I'm a really firm believer in that when it is an accountable measure as well. So, you know, somewhere like the ABC is now a signatory to that as well. Constantly amuses me that I think sport was the last cab off the rank (laughs) because I think there was an acknowledgement it was probably going to be the hardest. And my experience actually is being one of the people who boosts those numbers, but from the outside. I think we still have a tendency sometimes, I know I'm supposed to be talking about positive things, but to outsource some of these achievements and the meeting of quotas still relies on the outsourcing of labour to women who are still not employed in secure paid roles. So that's my caveat. But the 50-50 policy is also moving in the direction of greater representation of people of colour, who are not able-bodied, LGBTI people and so on. So I think the more the more we can push for greater representation, not just in terms of gender, the better. So we've talked about the BBC and we've talked about the ABC becoming a signatory and I think that, you know, there are some green shoots there, but uh, agreed that we've still got women who are in precarious work situations, which yeah. of course we saw highlighted so awfully during the, the COVID pandemic, which of course 
course, we're still in, enduring. Could you know any organisation, apart from Siren, um, that is doing, whether it's a club, whether it's an industry, whether it's an organisation, is there one that comes to mind and you think, yep, that's the benchmark or they're the ones who've kind of, they're showing so much promise in this area? I just feel like I'm not enough of an insider to say this with any confidence, but, you know, I was at an event at the Wheeler Centre last night about women in sport broadly, but, you know, Rana Hussain's just started as diversity inclusion officer at, um, at, yeah, at cricket. And, you know, she actually told her, well, her line was something like, you know, there are some sports that are really good at telling the story of what they're doing around gender equality and it's not backed up by what's happening behind the scenes and, and cricket, while there's a lot of room for improvement, perhaps cricket's actually better at doing the behind the scenes work and not telling the story. And I think, you know, someone like Sarah Stiles, who was at Cricket Australia for so long, you know, having such a huge role in the magnificent event that we saw with the T20 World Cup final at the MCG. I actually think we would have broken that record for attendance if it wasn't for COVID because it was, some people forget that the pandemic was happening and I know many people who wanted, there were, yeah, we still had 80, what, 86 something thousand, that might not be exactly right, but um, I remember it being about 6k short of the record and I know a lot of people that day who wanted to come but were too worried about the pandemic, which is fair enough, even I sat there kind of thinking, what am I doing sitting here with 80 something thousand people? You know, so I think like who would have thought even certainly when I was a cricketer you know I was very emotional that day because so was some... I, I must admit I was at home watching I was supposed to be there but I was actually very sick feeling extraordinarily emotional but then also thinking back to a conversation that I'd had with Sarah Stiles very early on when I had started my business and started doing this work and I I met up with Sarah over at we we the MCG and had a coffee and what have you and I was gobsmacked to find out there was just one of her. Imagine she had a department, yeah. You know the head head of women's participation, and I went, oh right. And she said, so my job is to advocate across all areas, and I went, yeah 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 yeah. And in my head, I'm going, I've heard this story before. So yeah, I also agree. I think Sarah Styles has made extraordinary inroads for for women, and look, she's clearly being able to tell a story and convince and influence and persuade people. But to see that played out on that day on the 8th of March last year was terrific. And of course, now she's a director of the Office of Women's Sport and Recreation. But I think that also, you're right, we've got these things to celebrate, like the fact that we almost filled the MCG. But It's sort of bittersweet though, isn't it? Game. It is. It is. Because I was really emotional being there because my former teammate, Rachel Haynes, was playing. And I, I sort of thought, oh my God, like this could have been me. I could have been playing, you know. We played for Victoria together. So it was sad actually for me because it was like, wow, look at how far things have come. But also, yeah, like I think that's worth noting and we need to keep noting that we can't just rely on people like Sarah Styles being an absolute superstar, working God knows how many hours and way beyond her means and pay grade and all those things probably to pull off something like this. And and look what happened during the pandemic, you know, like they let off the head of women's cricket. The call to action out of this one is, and it's threaded through everything that we've talked about, is I want policymakers and administrators to put a gender lens, mm. an intersectional gender lens over every decision that they mm-hmm. So when it comes to the allocation of funding, resources, equipment, when it comes to stand downs, furloughs, we've got to have that, that gender lens. Otherwise, that entrenched endemic gender inequity perpetuates and actually conflates as a result. The call to action is how will, and if you don't know how to put a gender lens over thing, that's what you talk to me about. So yeah, 
putting a gender lens over everything mm-hmm. will, will make sure that those decisions are, are made. Great conversation and your full-length interview, we will have documented so anyone uh, listening to this or watching this can read the full interview. We've just touched on just a little bit of Kate's amazing accomplishments, opinions and her calls to action, which I paraphrase a little bit. But Kate, thank you for the work that you have done, continue to do and, you know, my call to action is someone has to employ Kate <laughs> and pay her what she's worth so that we can continue to hear your your voice, your opinions. And the reason your opinions are so important is because every time I read something of yours, it makes me think a little more deeply about something perhaps I hadn't given enough thought to. Oh, that's really nice. Thanks, Michelle. Work to do and it's been great having you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.